Morning, church. Y'all are all response, so responsive today. It's because of that big Alabama win yesterday, right? Well, if you're excited about that win and you're an Alabama fan, I feel sorry for you. Hey, great trivia question in, you know, years to come. In the 2023 Alabama-Arkansas game, did Arkansas take the lead to begin the game? Yes, they did. <laughs> All right. I see some LSU represented in the building today, and that's not even from George. All right. Well, it's good to see everybody today, and um, we've got a few announcements that we need to make, and Andrea Stovall is going to do that. Andrea? Y'all are so blessed to have me two weeks in a row. Y'all are really going to get to know me. Um, two announcements this morning. Um, we need people to help Dr. Thomas next week um, with his merchandise table. Uh, he usually brings, the last time he was here, he had a helper. Um, he, he usually brings uh, some books to sell. He has uh, some children's books and adult books. Um, with with him, and uh, he's not able to bring anybody this time. So we we have a sign up for the three times he will be here, the three different sessions. And so there's a sign up sheet in the foyer. If um, a couple or two friends want to sign up and help him with that, there's a sign up sheet out in the foyer for three different time slots. If you would like to help, just go put your name out there. Uh, the next thing I'm excited about, because we have so many new people that don't know us, and so many new people, we don't know you, and if you don't uh, have a child that you check in each week, I don't know a lot of you, and you maybe don't know me, except now you know me, because I've been up here two Sundays in a row. Uh, but we are doing a church directory, and the most exciting part is Olin Mills isn't doing it, so there's not going to be a a massive push to buy $400 worth of photos. It's going to be free. And my friend Misty Skinner is going to be doing uh, the photo session. And you will receive a digital copy of your family's photo. And you will be able to take it to Walmart or do it online and order whatever you would like to uh, with that photo. So this is a great thing, I think. So. Everybody should be able to show up and have their picture in our directory. That way, when you're like, who is that person? You'll be able to go, oh, I know that person. I'm great with faces, but not great with, with names. And so a photo directory is a good way to put a face with a name. So after church today, Debbie and Amanda will be in the foyer with, um, with a sign-up for a time slot. And these will be done, um, I believe, the first or second week in November, um, but they will take, um, you'll sign up for a time slot, and they will give you a reminder card for that uh, right after the service today, so if you will um, see them right after the church service, they'll get you signed up, and I'm pretty sure they will send you a reminder so you won't forget, and they'll give you a reminder card so you won't forget, and if you lose it, they'll call you and remind you and send you a text, there'll be plenty of reminders, um, so you will not forget when your time is. And so Misty does really good work. So, and it'll be here at the church 
And again, there won't be a two-hour presentation to buy the photo package, so you'll get a free copy. So really no excuse not to show up and get that done. So I'm looking forward to it because we have so many new faces and a lot of us have changed. Oh no, it's for everybody. It's for everybody that's been coming to our church, um, frequent visitors, uh, new people who really love us and want to keep coming. Everybody. It's not just for members. No, everybody. Good question, Dean. I forgot that in my notes. So, all right, looking forward to everybody um, participating in that. So see Debbie and Amanda after the service. Thank you. All right, so if you believe Grace is your home, and we want you to have your face up here and take a picture. And you've got a few weeks to work on that and uh, to get yourself ready for that picture. So that's always a good thing, all right? I thought we'd read through First and Second Thessalonians, um, not in just one sitting, but... Uh, begin every week reading through that. And so I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and then we'll read through uh, both of these um, letters. As you know, in these letters uh, uh, are prophecy, and um, well, we're right, I believe, on the precipice of the Lord's return. And as you can see um, with the events going on, and uh, isn't it nice that as believers, while we see all the chaos and the horrific things going on, that we have the hope of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that great to know that we who know the Lord Jesus, you know, we're not looking for the next bomb, we're looking for the Lord Jesus. And when he comes in the clouds, uh, what a time that will be for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you know without a doubt that you belong uh, to the Lord today. So let's uh, stand as we read, we'll read chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing Brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And may the Lord uh, give us understanding, and uh, may we be committed to the word that he has given to us for our consideration this morning. Let's uh, pray together. 
Father, thank you for the example of the Thessalonian believers. It tells us that they mimicked the Lord. They were examples Macedonia and Achaia. Um, the word of the Lord sounded forth from not only their mouths, but their life lived. I pray that would be true for us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God would sound forth from us verbally, but that it would also sound forth from us as we live our lives uh, to your glory. This morning, I pray that the Lord Jesus would receive all the glory and all the honor and that um, we would be set aside and that Christ would be lifted up. And I pray that we are ready for worship this morning, that we are ready to sing and that we are ready to hear what your word says to us. And so we just uh, pray for that commitment and pray that we would honor you today. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's remain standing and let's uh, exalt the name of the Lord together. That's what we're going to do. We're going to exalt him because we have the victory through Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we're going to sing about. And let's worship him. As Thad uh, as said, are you ready? Are you ready to worship? I hope you are. Let's sing, let's sing together, may we? because we're going to celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus. Let's sing together, maybe.
you raise your hand and say praise God amen we are here and that's the reason why we've come to worship him and he's done it in Christ in Christ alone uh, let's sing that together because we give him all the honor and the glory this
seated. Little, that last little line, no power of man or no power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Wow, what a thought. What a wonderful God we serve that holding on to us does not rely on who we are or what we do. It's in Christ alone and everything that he does. It's a great mystery of how it all works. If we try to understand it, we can't do it because it's something of God that only He can know and He can understand. We try to. We try to figure out what He's doing a lot of times. But He is God and He's God alone. And He uses Christ, His own Son on the cross to die for our sins even though we deserve the cross, and he, de he deserves the righteousness, but he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. What? I, I, I can't understand that. I don't know why he would do that. Not for me, anyway. Maybe, maybe you can figure it out on your own for you. But it's a great mystery, mystery of who God is and how he works. And that's what this song is that the choir is going to sing. And I want you to look at the words. And, uh, and sing along with them. You know the song, many of you know the song. Sing along with them if you'd like to. And uh, behold the wondrous mystery.
together maybe father what a wondrous mystery that you have performed in our lives Lord and you set it all up father so that we could enjoy being with you we can enjoy worshiping you we can enjoy fellowshipping with you God we come together this morning to do just that to pull away from the world, pull away from all the things that, that's going on and what we see on the news and, and the stresses of life, just to come and be with you and to honor you, Lord, for what all that you have done in our life. But not only for what you have done for us, Lord, but just for who you are, the great creation that you have created, God, that we can enjoy and, Lord, we know that it's not, it's not that good creation because of what man did with sin. Lord, we caused the earth to be cursed. But, Father, we look forward to the day when we're going to be in that perfect place that you have prepared for us. We look forward to that day when, when you're going to come and you're going to receive us to yourself. Lord, what a wonderful day that that is going to be. And, God, we just look forward to that. Lord, that now this is just a foretaste of the glory to come as we gather together in your house today with each other, just a foretaste of it. Oh, Lord, when we get together with you in heaven and the place that you have prepared, God, it's going to be so perfect and so wonderful. And, God, we look so forward to that. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you for the time of just worshiping and singing. Lord, now we just ask you to touch our hearts. Lord, I pray that you send your spirit upon this place today and, and teach our hearts what we need to know from your word that our pastor is going to bring to us. Father, be with us now through the rest of this time. These things we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Can't ever go wrong in a service when you're singing victory in Jesus, can you? Will you be in heaven? Do you know that you'll be in heaven? Are you confident of that this morning? I plan to be in heaven. I hope you know this morning where you're seated that you, without a doubt, know that if you were to die today, you would be in heaven. There's a passage we're going to look at this morning, and I'm not sure if this person is in heaven, so I 
ask you the question, will she be in heaven? I don't know. There are um, many times when I've wanted to ask the Lord face to face, why did you lead me to this passage? I want you to take your Bibles and go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Quite certain that over the years, many have asked you to turn to John chapter 8, in which Jesus says that he is the light of the world. I'm also quite certain that you've been asked to turn to John 8, and not many have addressed verses 1 through 11. But that's what I'm going to attempt to do today with the help of the Lord. I have some introductory thoughts for you to consider this morning. First of all, this particular account in verses 1 through 11, which actually back up to chapter 7, verse 53, and go through 811. This account is not one that um, many textual scholars agree on. They do agree that these verses are not a part of the original manuscripts. There's a lot of agreement on that point. In fact, in your Bible, you might even have brackets around chapter 7, verse 53 uh, through chapter 8, verse 11. And so when you see the brackets, it's just an opportunity to skip over it. There are other passages that have brackets. There are brackets in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in um, the book of Acts. I've always been intrigued by the brackets, I guess, just because I'm a, I like to think a lot, and um, I like to try to figure things out, and um, I can't figure everything out. But I do know that this particular text is in my Bible, in the translation that I have. So, because it's in the translation I have, I thought we would talk about it this morning. And then this afternoon, you can talk about why the pastor would ever approach a passage like this. No Greek church father makes any comment on this passage until about the 12th century. You're like, okay, that, okay that's, that's just more reason not to even discuss it. However, many do think that, as one theologian put it, it has all the earmarks of historical veracity. And because of that, commenting on this section is in order. In other words, there's nothing wrong with it. I would add that in this particular section, we're not going to see anything different doctrinally. You're not going to look at it and go, well, that's just not right. Now, you might look at it and go, wow, there's a lot of questions that we don't have answers to, and you would be accurate about that. There are a lot of questions that, that I have in the text that I just don't know the answer to, and you don't have the answer, so I'm not quite certain what kind of conversation we might have. But I'm quite certain this passage brings up a lot of conversation simply because of what is going on in the text. I would add personally that this particular text seems to illustrate what John gives us in chapter 1, verse 17, which says this. Listen to these words of John. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Yeah? Yeah. Let me read that again because you're going to think about that as this is presented this morning. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Can we pray and ask for the Spirit to help us? That'd be all right. Father, we want to pray this morning that your Spirit would help us. I don't really have everything that's going to come from this. I don't know what's going to come from this. I just know that in my study time, it, it was very intriguing as to what took place. And um, we have it here to deal with in a context and so I pray that we would consider that as we look at each of the verses this morning. Uh, at the end of the day, may the Lord Jesus Christ be lifted up. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. First five verses. My outline is she is brought to the middle. She's brought to the center. She's the center of attention. But is she really the central issue for these religious leaders? Look at verses 1 through 5. If you back up to chapter 7, verse 53, there's a lot of discussion in chapter 7 about who Jesus is. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the Gospel of John about who is Jesus? Who is he? There was even some division that was taking place over the question of who is Jesus? But at the end of chapter 7, it says, everyone went to his home. You might wonder, well, who is everyone? Well, I don't know. Just everyone went to their home. You say, where do these people come from? Well, the Bible tells us in chapter 8, in verse 2, that Jesus is in the temple. This is something that, um, in context, he was in the temple during uh, the end of what was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And if you back up to chapter 7, we won't look there, but you'll see that that feast was upon them. And by the time we get to this particular account, the feast has come to its conclusion. And so some people have gone to their homes, but the Bible tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's something that Jesus did in his life and ministry. Answer, yes. So, so far, not a problem, right? Um, Jesus did spend time at the Mount of Olives. In fact, a lot of very important time was spent by the Lord Jesus at the Mount of Olives. It says, verse 2, Early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Is that something that we see in the life of the Lord Jesus where he's speaking in the temple? Answer, yes. In fact, if you go to chapter 7, there's a couple of references to where Jesus is indeed speaking in the temple. Now, remember I said to you that this was in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time in the fall when Israel celebrated the provision of the Lord. It was a time when they celebrated not only the provision that they had, but that the provision that the Lord had given to 
Israel during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Um, the word tabernacle means to dwell with. Do you know that the Bible tells us that in the future that the Lord Jesus is going to tabernacle with those that belong to him? <laughs> Isn't that pretty cool? That he is going to dwell with those who belong to him. And so that's what was going on. And Jesus was in the temple teaching an activity that he did on a regular basis. Any problem with that? No problem with that. Jesus is temping, uh, teaching in the temple. And it says in verse 2, he says, And all the people were coming to him. Now, remember that one of the times of celebration for Israel was the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. So there would have been a good amount of people in Jerusalem. Okay? We need to get the picture of here. So, so there's a potentially a good amount of people that are at the temple uh, during this particular story that we have, the account that we have. And so it says early in the morning, which, hey, we know from the Bible Jesus was early in the morning kind of guy. How many of you are an early kind of guy? Right? Or gal. I'm not. But many times we see that phrase, early in the morning, early in the morning, early in the morning. He came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. In fact, back in chapter 7, there's focus on him teaching in the temple. If you look at verse 14, but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach and the Bible says, verse 15 of chapter 7, the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? They were fascinated by the words of the Lord Jesus. So it tells us that he was teaching them. Well, then we have the entrance of the scribes and the Pharisees. Great bunch of guys. The Bible says... They come on the scene, and they bring a woman. Look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court. So she is right in the center. She is the center of attention, so to speak. And what, what's amazing about this is that while the Pharisees want to make her the central issue and really use her to try to corner the Lord, they become the center of attention. <laughs> Don't you just love the Lord how he does that? Right? They come to bring this woman caught in adultery in the very act, as the Bible says. And they're going to place her in the center. And they're going to use this to trap Christ. And at the end of it, we come to find out that she's not the center of attention. But they become the center of attention. These religious leaders. And so the Bible says, verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Wow, that's quite a statement. Don't you, aren't you interested to know as a reader how in the world did that happen? Not that she was caught going from one room to the other, but she was caught in the very act. That's what it says. Right? So what should happen to this woman? And so that's what's on their mind. Then it says, verse 4, They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now verse 5, Now 
in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Oh, so is this really about the woman? Is this really about adultery? Or is this more about how Jesus would respond? And they were hoping to trap him, were they not? They spent a lot of time trying to trap the master teacher. Never seemed to work, did it? I've got some questions that you're going to answer for me this afternoon. I wrote some down just based on those first five verses. After reading verses one through five, question one, who's missing from this scene? Where's the dude? I mean, doesn't, I mean, I, I don't know how you think of it, but adultery involves two people. Where is the dude? Is he among them? I don't know. Bible doesn't say. How do they have relationship with this woman? Isn't that interesting to think about? How do they know her? What are they doing? Standing outside the door waiting? They send somebody in? How did that work? I got no idea. Who was this woman? We don't have a name. Why did they expose her publicly? Is there any indication from the Bible as to how they were to deal with one caught in adultery? And if so, why is it just her? Couldn't they drag the dude as well? How well did they know her? And if so, how old was she? Doesn't say. Doesn't say a whole lot about her, does it? It just says that they brought her. And that according to them, she was caught in the very act of Adultery. How did they catch her in that act? How many of the group were literally eyewitnesses to the account? Any idea? No idea. But the Old Testament tells us some very important things as it related to the law of Moses and what is said about adultery. Just listen to these verses. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Both of them. Not just one of them, but both of them. In fact, Deuteronomy 22.22 says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. Both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. That was the law. And as we know, the Old Testament tells us that on the basis of two or three witnesses, every what fact was to be confirmed, which does come into play at the end of the day. So in verses 1 through 5, we have a picture of the Lord teaching in the temple, and then we have a picture of a woman brought to the center with the scribes and the Pharisees bringing her, but we don't have the man, but we do have accusation, and we do have an expectation. We do. What's the expectation? The expectation on the part of the religious rulers is you need to deal with her. 
How do you need to do that? Well, we're given some parenthetical insight. Isn't that a cool word, parenthetical? You know how many times I, I just love saying that word, parenthetical. There's a parenthetical part to verse 6, and that's the first part. Notice what it says. They were saying this, saying what? Saying what they said in verse 5. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? So they were saying this. And apparently they were saying it over and over again, as verse 7 says, when they persisted in asking him. They were saying this, testing him so that he might have grounds for, so they might have grounds, excuse me, for accusing him. So they're like, oh, well, he's in a pickle, right? What's he going to do? Well, if he said she should not be put to death, that would appear to be a violation of what? Old Testament law. And if he handed down the sentence of death, then he's just taking the place of who? Rome. Is that a problem? That's a problem. You ever thought that's why Pilate had to agree to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus? So we have a problem in the text. These guys are trying to trap the Lord. Did trapping the Lord ever work out well for folks? You know, people still try to trap the Lord. Are you listening to me? They do. People put the Lord in the corner and say, well, this is how you ought to behave, and this is, these are the things that you should do, and these are the things you should pay attention to. And Well, um, my Bible tells me he does as he wishes. He is the Lord. None of us are. Sure, we have questions as to why things happen, but at the end of the day, it's good enough to say the Lord is the Lord, isn't it? Because there are things that happen and transpire in our lives that we go, well, Lord, aren't you paying attention? My friends, listen to me. There's not a drop of rain that lands on the earth the Lord doesn't know about. You know what? And the Lord knows what's going on right here. <laughs> he knows what's going on. He's the God-man. He knows. And so there's some insight that we're given in to this particular account at the first part of verse 6. They were saying this, testing him. So they might have grounds for accusing him. So they wanted to trap him. What in the world would he do? Well, verses 6 through 9 we have writing and confronting from verses 6 through 9. Look at this, 6b. Now, this is after they said what they did in verse 5. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And then we have that parenthetical statement at the beginning of verse 6. But then in the middle of verse 6, we have the response of the Lord. But Jesus stooped down and with his fingers wrote on the ground. Was he just disinterested in what they said? Right, you know, the word there, right, can mean doodle, or it can mean right with intent. I don't think he's doodling. I 
think there's something going on here that we all want to know the answer to, but we just don't have. Because we want to know what he wrote, don't we? But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. What did he write? Do we need to know? Nah, we don't need to know. In fact, the account indicates we don't need to know. Because they don't respond in full to what he wrote on the ground. They respond to what he says. That's what the text tells us. How many times did he write on the ground? Twice. Did he write on the ground in identifying these men and say, Hey, Fred, you coveted. Hey, Barney, you've stole. Hey, Oscar, you've borne false witness. Ugh. Because remember, these guys, right, they're, they're the elite. They're the righteous. And they are pronouncing judgment on this woman. And they bring her to the center of attention. I don't know what he wrote. Did he write out the Ten Commandments? <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting to know? I mean, I don't have any idea. Did he write their names and say, guilty? Guilty, guilty. Well, they needed to be told they were guilty, did they not? That's one of the things that, as you look at this particular account, the woman doesn't ever deny. She knows she's guilty. You know what, guys? We have to be really, really careful when we think about the, the term righteousness. There's only one that's perfectly righteous, and that's the Lord. This is how people view this. Well, she deserves this, or they deserve that, or we don't need to share with these folks. Oh, no, you know what the greatest need that the Pharisees and scribes had? The Lord. They needed to know him personally. They needed to know, but they didn't know. I don't know what he wrote on the ground. But I believe it probably got their attention. And looking at some of the different comments by different theologians, some believe he may have been writing down the Ten Commandments. Um, some believe that he wrote down a commandment that they broke and then wrote beside the commandment they broke their name. I got no idea what he did. But he wrote on the ground. I have something I want to introduce to you that I had as a thought, and you can just take it as a thought. I kind of think that when I consider the Lord Jesus stooping down and writing on the ground, what's their, what did they bring attention to in verse 5? The law of Moses. So maybe he stooped down and he began to write the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Do you remember in the life of Moses when he was given those commandments? Do you remember what happened after he was given those commandments? And he comes back down off the mountain, and what are the people doing? Worshiping the Lord. Is that what they're doing? No, they had made a calf. 
And so he, he took those because of his anger and he what? He broke them. And then we know that the Lord gave him the commandments. Again, the Bible tells us that. I just wonder, and this is just to throw out and consider, I wonder if when the Lord first wrote on the ground, if that didn't represent the Father giving the commandments to Moses, and that when he wrote it the second time, it was him. Not only does the Father give you these, I give you these. You say, that is there any... Any evidence for that? Well, I don't know, but I kind of think there's something to think about back in chapter 7. So I want you to turn there. Chapter 7. You shouldn't even have to flip maybe a page. You have the right translation. You don't have to flip. Okay? Chapter 7. I was just kidding. If you come with a new King James or whatever, that's fine too. Look at verse 14 of chapter 7. It says, But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach... Jews were astonished. We read this a few minutes ago. How has this man become learned, learned, having never been educated? Look what it says. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Who's that? Who's that? The Father. Thank you. Y'all can talk out loud. Notice what it says. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God, look what it says, or whether I speak from who? Myself. Oh. Yeah, the first person and the second person of the Trinity represented right in that verse. And so as I look at this in chapter 8, I don't know. One of my thoughts is that may be what went on. The first was a picture of the Father giving the commands to Moses and the people. And the second time he bent down on the ground, it was him. These are my words. Because remember, what he, what he already told them? I and the Father are what? One. They already had a problem here. Well, so that's the writing. I don't know what he wrote, but I do know that he wrote. But then we have the confrontation. And the confrontation is through the words spoken. Look at verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, how many times did they ask him? Right? Probably too many to count. Right? For us, we would have been like, okay, these guys are getting on my nerves. Right? Over and over and over and over and over again. They're asking him. That's the idea of the word persisted. He straightened up and said to them, and you hear this verse, even if you don't know the Bible, you've heard people quote this verse, right? Sure you have. He who is without sin, Jesus says among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love the Lord. Listen to me. That woman, in the context of this particular account, guilty. Those men that brought her and set her in the center, guilty. You and me, guilty. Guilty. Paul 
tells us in the conclusion in Romans after his dissertation on the condition of man, for all have sinned. All have sinned. Who are we to look at people and say, well, you deserve to hear the gospel, but you don't. Everyone needs to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving power. Do you agree with that? It's not a selective thing. We don't go, well, yeah, they look, they look righteous. So I'm going to share with them. I mean, guys, we know the truth, don't we? Hey, but for the grace of God, there go you and there goes I. He says, he who was without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. I have two thoughts about what Jesus said there. Because back in chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Do not judge according to appearance. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Boy, howdy. Pharisees, they judge based on what? And they look good. You ever read um, Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I mean, he just rakes them over the coals. The outside looks good. But the inside, you're dead. That's quite something to hear, right? When he pronounces judgment on them, the outside of the tomb, your whitewashed tomb, looks fantastic. Inside, like dead men's bones. You know what, guys? I'm, I'm going to say something. I'm not sure how you're going to hear it. The church is guilty at times of looking at the lifestyles of people who are sinners and say, well, they're just dirty. There's no hope for them. This woman would have been considered an outcast and the Pharisees, ah, there's no hope for her. Again, where's the dude? Jesus tells them, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Ugh. Just this morning I was hearing somebody speak about the fact that uh, there was a comment made that someone liked talking about the love of God, but not so much about the justice of God. My friends, listen to me. We take the love of God and we say Amen. But we take the justice of God and we say amen to. Well, did Jesus have Deuteronomy 19 in mind? Now, this one you might want to turn back. And if you're just half asleep, you might not. But Deuteronomy 19. Remember, Jesus says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, verse 15 of chapter 19. Did I say 14? I meant 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. 
If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. What was the attitude of these religious leaders? Love? I don't think so. So, verse 16 speaks of a malicious witness. Verse 18, the judges shall investigate thoroughly. If the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he has intended to do it to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I don't know exactly everything the Lord had in mind, but I think one of the things we can say for sure is He's saying to those religious leaders, You're guilty too. You're guilty as well. You come up here with your tassels and your robes and you look good on the outside, but you're dead. You're sinful. You're sinners. Well, what was their response? They came right back at him, didn't they? No, that's not what happened. Look what it says. Verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, when they heard it. Okay, not when they saw what he was writing. But when they heard it, what, what's it? He was without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one. <laughs> wow, what a scene that must have been, right? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there, just like transported? As, man, you got this woman out here in the middle, and she is, right? She's the one. She's guilty. And the Lord comes back to them with a message and say, Hey, listen, you're guilty too. And we don't even know what he wrote on the ground, but obviously the bottom line is those guys aren't pounding their chest at the end of the day. They're getting up and they're walking out one by one. Uh-oh. That's interesting. I thought that was interesting, beginning with the older ones. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Probably a lot of people would leave that phrase alone. I just didn't. I was like, hey, that's interesting. Isn't it true that as we get older, we do see a little better, don't we? Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, in the great dissertation in Romans comes to the end of chapter 7. He says, O wretched man that I am. If you're over 30 or whatever, I don't know what the line in the sand is, the age, but if somebody came up to me after church and said, Dad, you're a sinner, I'd be like, sure I am. <laughs> I am a big sinner. Amen, hallelujah. That's the truth. But I'm saved by grace. And that's the truth too. The Bible says, <laughs> there isn't one of them left. I don't even know how many there were. The Bible doesn't tell us. There's another question we don't have the answer to. The Bible says, going out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman. Why didn't she leave? That's just a question I have. You're going to give me that answer after you eat your bologna sandwich at lunch. Why didn't she leave? 
Why'd she stay? The Bible says he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Well, then we come to verses 10 and 11. And I've entitled these two verses, Freedom and Grace. I don't know how you would entitle them. You work on it yourself. Freedom and grace is what I see in verses 10 and 11. Look what it says, verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. If you're looking at it from the perspective of the Savior, wow. Hey, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Judge you. Judge is the word krino in the Greek. In fact, it's, there's a prefix in front of krino, which emphasizes, did no one, absolutely no one condemn you? In other words, did, did one of them just hang around? Or was there, no, there was no one. Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. Now, at this point in the account, can you believe there's different viewpoints about something in the Bible? Some believe that because of translation, the word Lord there can be translated two different ways. It can just be sir, a term of respect, or it can be master. You say, well, Thad, you give me the answer and I'll believe it. I don't know the answer. It could be both. Some say based on Jesus' response, then she absolutely came to know the Lord as Savior. And that's the grace that you see here. And I'm inclined to hope that that's the case. That's why I posed the question in the beginning, is she in heaven? I don't know. The Bible says, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said... Here it is. I do not condemn you either. I do not condemn you either. Absolutely is what he's saying. Because the word there, the prefix there, again occurs. In other words, I absolutely do not condemn you. That seems like a pretty strong message, doesn't it? You say, that. how does that fit within the greater context of the gospel of John? Well, it fits. Take your Bibles and go back to chapter 3. I want to just show you something. You know, in chapter 3, we have the account of Nicodemus and, and the Lord Jesus. And we know these verses well. But look what it says. We may not know 17 as well. For God so loved the world, verse 16, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that? Look at this. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. Same word. That the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus come the first time? To condemn the world? No, to save. 
He came to seek and to save those who were what? Lost. The Bible says that he came to offer himself. So when I think about the statement that Jesus made, it just took me immediately back to chapter 3. Why Jesus came. I do not condemn you either. And then he says, go. He says, go. You're free. Go. And then he says, from now on, sin no more. That can be translated, leave your life of sin. You know, when I read this, I almost see a line in the sand there where the Lord says, look, I don't judge you either. Go. But then here's the line. From now on, sin no more. That almost seems like new beginnings to me. I'm just throwing that out to you to think about. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying that looks different, doesn't it? Um, he didn't say, hey, go clean up your act and come back. He didn't say, go get it together and come back. The Lord doesn't deny her sin. He didn't say, do the right thing and you'll be accepted. <laughs> Aren't you glad that's not a requirement for us? You go do the right thing and then you'll be accepted. That's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith. You agree with that? Well, A.T. Robertson, there aren't many guys who write about this, by the way. But A.T. Robertson, in his commentary on Jesus' response to the woman, he said this, we can only hope that this woman was changed in her heart and life. Don't we hope that? Don't we hope that? Don't we hope that our leaders in Washington come to know Christ? Don't we hope that? We ought to be shouting yes. The greatest change in a person's life is the day they come to Christ. Say, if that is she with the Lord, I don't know. If you had to you're pointing something at me that could hurt me, I'd probably say, yeah, she's there. <laughs> well, I don't know exactly what you're going to take from this today. I, <laughs> I was sitting in my little office area. I got it upstairs now. And I was sitting there, and I was like, Lord, how does this work out for us? And I had some thoughts that came to my mind. Number one, I don't need to be discriminatory when I'm sharing the gospel. I need to share it with everybody. No matter what they look like, what they sound like, doesn't matter. What they're guilty of. You hear, I've heard people use the phrase literally over the years. I don't know if they're worthy of hearing. Seriously? Worthy of hearing? Lord, help us. All I know is this, if I look in my Bible, I go back just a few chapters. 
he's with the religious leader named Nicodemus in chapter 3. And he's with a different kind of person in chapter 4. The woman at the well. You know what I think those are for us? Reminders. The gospel's for everybody. It's for everybody to hear. Will everybody come to know him? No, but it's for everybody to hear. I think if you're reading the passage, it's a pretty easy transition from chapter 7, verse 52, to chapter 8, verse 12. That's <laughs> just a pretty easy transition. And so you're like, hey, if that, why would we even talk about these verses? Because they're there. And I know nobody necessarily commented on it till centuries later, but oh well. It's certainly something for us to consider, is it not? And isn't it true that when we look at this passage, there's really nothing out of the ordinary? Is there? The Pharisees were accusers, right? And the Lord dealt with them as he had to. And aren't we glad about what Paul wrote in Romans? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good stuff? Well, I'm going to close by just reading this one verse of a song and then we're going to sing a song together. That would be all right? You're going to help me. One of my favorite hymns is page 198 in the hymnal I have. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Listen to the third verse. Because, you know, this is what can happen to us if we're not careful. We can look at a family member or a friend and say, it's just hopeless. Lord, forgive me. We don't know, do we? The Lord just gave us responsibility to share. But listen to this. Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled. Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled by its transforming power making him God's dear child. <laughs> Sometimes I think it's almost like we determine who's going to be God's child. Please don't think that. Purchasing peace in heaven for all eternity for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. When I look at the life of Paul, he was a pretty raunchy fella before he came to the Lord. When I look at my life, pretty raunchy fella before I came to the Lord, still raunchy a bunch. But I'm saved by grace and I live by the grace of God. Well... Let's sing a song and then we'll pray and go. How about that? Then you go home and eat your bologna sandwich. You like fried, fried bologna is pretty good. All right. I know what's going to happen to some of you. You're going to leave here and go buy bologna. You're going to have that conversation with your wife in the car. Dad mentioned bologna. How's that, how's that sound? Make sure you get sour cream and onion chips with them. Best, best way to balance that out. Let's sing this song together. First and last stanzas of Amazing Grace. that be all right? This is a reminder the amazing grace of the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We sing better when we're standing. All right, here we go.
you for what we can learn. We always want to honor you. We thank you that you've given us things in your word to think through that we might um, grow uh, in grace and knowledge. Help us to be sensitive to the folks you put around us, no matter who they are, what they look like, how they sound. Help us to share the good news of the Lord Jesus. We close our service this morning by praying for the nation of Israel. And Father, we just commit them to you, the leadership and the people. We ask for your wisdom and your guidance. Help us as we live the Christian life to be a reflection of your love. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.